All right, everybody. Good morning. How are we doing? Yay. I would have been here sooner, but I had to defrost my window this morning. That's kind of amazing. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time to Remnant, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. We, uh, we're kind of all on this journey together, and uh, I think all of us at some point uh, got to a point in our life where maybe things weren't going well, or maybe we weren't as much in control as we thought we were, and, and we began looking for answers, because honestly, we've been leading our life into places we don't want to go. And so we come to a place like this, and we, we just wonder, is it possible that Jesus is the answer? And many of us came here with that question. Uh, maybe Jesus is the answer to my life. Maybe, maybe these Christians are on to something, and maybe, uh, maybe I'll learn something. And so we come here, and we hope to learn something. We read the Bible. We try to gain knowledge. But what happens is, as we begin to study God's Word, as we begin to read the Bible, this weird thing happens, and we find that we're developing a relationship with the author, that we're having a connection with God. And we thought we'd figure this out based on knowledge, but it turns out that it's our heart that moves us towards God. And as a result, we, we come here every week because we want to learn more, because as we learn more, we surrender more. And the more we surrender to Him, the more our life gets changed. And the weird thing is we don't change it. It happens to us. And so we're here again today to learn in many ways how to surrender to the most difficult thing in your life to surrender to. And that is your release of a future that you don't have control over anyway. And we're in week three now of a series on anxiety and, and what God has to say about worry and fear. And this is our last week. And it is but you have to admit, over the last few weeks as we've been studying God's Word, there's a part of you going, maybe it is possible. Maybe it is possible to live with either no fear, no anxiety, no worry, or almost no fear, anxiety. I mean, I mean a week ago, two weeks ago, it almost seemed impossible, right? I mean, how could you live a life without any anxiety? But now that we've studied God's Word and we begin to understand what He says, you're like, you know what? I, I think that's how we're supposed to be living. But right now we're learning how to change our devotion. We've learned that the reason we have anxiety, the reason we have worry is that we're not devoted to the right things. We learn that we have to seek first the kingdom of God and trust that he holds our future just like he holds our past. In doing so, we have to be a light or can be a light to those who are stressed out worrying about tomorrow. And they may look at us and go, wow, why aren't you freaking out? And it's a chance to tell them about this incredible Savior that we know. You see, we've learned quite a bit. We've learned there's a correlation between our amount of faith and the amount of worry that we have. We worry because we can't control the future. And we talked about how worry doesn't mean that we don't care or God doesn't care. It's just that we understand that God is out ahead of us working out our future just like he was working out our past. We do our best we can do today and then we hand over everything else to God for our tomorrows. Last week we learned that God wants us to shift our devotion, that when we get so laser focused on our worries and concerns about whatever it is, that we need to shift our devotion and the antidote to worry and anxiety is prayer. We talked about how worrying is just praying to yourself. It's a waste of time. 
But when we pray to the Father, we begin to align our will with His. We begin to understand what He's doing. We're reminded of His faithfulness. We learn that Jesus has taught us to seek first the kingdom of God. That often when we're worried, we're so focused on ourselves and our circumstances that we miss the big picture. So Jesus taught and we learned that we should step back once in a while and notice the birds and the lilies and how the birds never worry because God's got them too. If you miss any of the first two weeks, I encourage you to go to our website, go back and start from the beginning. This is a major part of your life as a believer, knowing that God has your future. We learned uh, that worry blows up like a balloon and that submitting our will to God deflates it. And finally, we learned that when we pray, we get supernatural peace about the future, that when we seek the kingdom, all the things we're worried about get added to us anyway. We've talked about how we know that anxiety and worry dates back to Adam in the garden. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately covered themselves. They immediately became anxious. Sin and anxiety go together. But we also learn that the people in Jesus' time struggled as well because Jesus spent a lot of time talking about how to live free from worry. He taught a lot to them on this topic and he teaches a lot to us as well. The human existence apart from God is defined by anxiety and worry, fear, because we were never meant to be in control of this place. We were never meant to operate independent of God. I thought it might be helpful today to look at a story in the Bible where somebody struggled with anxiety and worry. In fact, it almost destroys him. We're going to see how God used his anxiety to teach him some lessons, just as he does for us. In fact, if God has allowed it into your life, he's going to use it to grow you to be more like him. God is going to ask this man a question that is absolutely incredible. It's the question that I want you to ask whenever you realize you're starting to worry. Remember I said a couple weeks ago that worry is the dashboard warning light that your faith is having problems. If you're worried about something and the problem is not worry, that's the symptom. The problem is your faith is falling, is failing. We're going to see how God used this man to show him his anxiety and then ask him this incredible question that if pondered in the moment of worry changes his life and will change ours. In fact, if you're a worrier or you came in today and you're specifically freaked out about something that may happen in your future, you might want to take this question and put it on your mirror somewhere or write it on your hand or carry it with you to remind you because this is a question that centers us in the moment and moves us back to focus on God. It's a great story, so let me set the text for you. We're going to be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. Um, we've discussed on many occasions the Jewish nation and how the nations of 12 tribes had gone through a civil war, how the Jewish nation and the families couldn't get along, so they had a war and they divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel, the southern kingdom changed their name to Judah. Our story today takes place in about 860 BC. It's after the nation had already split. The king um, of the northern kingdom is named Ahab. 
Okay? Now, where else have you heard the name Ahab? Ahab, any English lit majors? Ahab was the captain that was in search of Moby Dick. Why is that important? Well, I'm going to share it with you. What was, Moby, what was Ahab's first mate's name? Starbuck. Why does Starbuck, what does Starbuck have to do with worry? Well, I'm going to share with you that one, I'm so glad you asked. One of my major <laughs> worries in life is to walk into a Starbucks. All I have to do is walk in. I start freaking out. I start sweating. My heart starts beating because I miss the language class. I must have been asleep when all y'all got up and went down to Starbucks and took this class on what to say and how to say it. I realized one day that everybody in the world knew how to order things at Starbucks except me. It's as if you go there and everyone's speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter. The guy in front of me always says something like grande decaf, half soy, half low-fat ice vanilla, double shot, gingerbread, chappuccino, extra dry, light ice. The guy behind me always seems to be in a hurry. Then I look over at my wonderful wife of 38 years and I see her mouth open and she just says grande skinny no foam caramel latte like it's just coming out of her mouth. She seems to be speaking in tongues. There's no interpreter. Everybody else understands what she's saying. And size makes no sense. Tall, grande, venti, trienta. What does that mean? And how can grande not be the biggest? I'm just saying. I look and see the, all these coffees from all over the world. I think, oh, I want to try that. No, we just have the beans. You can't actually have that coffee. Some of the elite have some secret, serve, some decoder code, and they get their coffee in a real cup. I don't know how they do that. It's amazing. And I'm not sure if they make a nod or gesture or the codes in their ramblings, but it's, it's incredible. And then People who have it all figured out sit at tables and look at people like me who walk in and go, I just want a black, like, medium thing. They're all on iPhones, iPads, MacBooks. They're usually dressed in black. They're reading the New York Times. They have their Kindles in their pocket. Everyone knows everybody else. There's kind of this low-key cool thing that makes you know that you don't belong there. And the drive through makes it even worse. There's so much pressure in the drive-thru. I'm telling you, Starbucks freaks me out. So it figures that if we're going to go talk about worry and anxiety, we'd start at Starbucks because Starbucks is the place that freaks me out. And Starbucks was the first mate of Ahab and Ahab was chasing Moby Dick and Ahab was also the king of the Northern Kingdom. So it all fits <laughs> in my mind somehow. Ahab's wife was far more famous than he was. I know that feeling. His wife was way better known than he was. He had violated God's law, and even though he was the king of Israel, he married a foreign woman, a woman who worshiped Baal, the false god. In addition, this woman not only worshiped Baal, she despised the God of Israel and spent her life trying to defeat the people who were following this God. She was a powerful woman. She was very influential. She ruined King Ahab and anybody who, she ruled King Ahab, her husband, and basically ruined anybody that opposed him. And her name was Jezebel. 
Ahab and Jezebel even sacrificed their own children as human sacrifices on pagan altars. Children were burned alive. Now, Elijah was God's prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel at that time. So we have Elijah, we have King Ahab. God sends Elijah to rebuke King Ahab. God's going to send a drought and he's going to ruin the nation's economy. Jesus would later teach that you can't serve God and money and your stuff is the reason you worry. God's about to wreck their false god of money through a drought. Elijah tells King Ahab, it's not going to rain again. King Ahab essentially says, yeah, right. It's not going to rain again. Long as I remember, the rain's been coming down. Clouds of mystery pouring confusion on the ground. And I still wonder, still I wonder, who will stop the rain? Well, apparently God, because it doesn't rain for months. Everyone thinks Elijah did it, so God tells Elijah, you better go hide. People think you control this. They don't know me. They don't believe in me. So God provided food for Elijah, but during this time, there's no rain, no crops. The cattle die. Things are really bad. Years go by. In fact, three years go by, and God finally goes to Elijah and says, I want you to go back and talk to King Ahab now. Elijah tells Ahab that God's ready to let it rain again. But King Ahab only believes in the false god of Baal. His wife has converted him to a false believer. So Elijah sets up a meeting between all those who worship Baal and himself. He says, I want you to meet me on Mount Carmel. I want you to bring all the prophets of Baal. Bring all the people who claim to have a connection with gods that don't exist. And I'll prove that he's worthless. We're all going to go to Mount Carmel together. You and your prophets are going to pray to your God, Baal, and I'm going to pray to my God, Yahweh, the God of our fathers. And we're going to see which one of these gods actually makes it rain. Sounds weird to us, but it's kind of like a WWE prophet smackdown thing that's happening on top of Mount Carmel. Everybody showed up to watch the fight. Mount Carmel's on the edge of the Mediterranean. This is a view from the valley of Jezreel. This is a view looking out over that valley. And then we have a view on the other side of Mount Carmel that looks down towards the Mediterranean. Now, they all met on top of Mount Carmel. You can read all about it later today. But over 400 prophets of Baal and thousands of people from surrounding cities came to see what would happen. Elijah tells the prophets of Baal to build an altar, and Elijah goes over to one of the broken altars to Yahweh God and begins rebuilding it. He tells them to go ahead and start. Go ahead and call out to your God and see if they can make it rain. And then I'll call on Yahweh and we'll see whose God is real. So the story goes on. That morning, the prophets of Baal begin to pray to, they begin to sacrifice, they, they're sacrificing animals, they're dancing around, they're cutting themselves, they're shouting. And this goes on from breakfast all the way through lunch and nothing's happened. Meanwhile, Elijah's making his altar and he begins to make some, well, politically incorrect statements. You could not get by with this in our culture today, but Elijah begins to make fun of their God. The prophets begin to dance around, they're cutting themselves. Elijah begins to taunt them, he's trash talking them. Elijah's building his altar and the other prophets are having a big circus trying to get Baal's attention. Elijah says, shout louder. Then he says, surely he's a God, isn't he? Perhaps he's in deep thought. He's just making fun of Baal. 
Maybe Baal is busy or maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's in the bathroom and you just need to give him more time. That's actually in scripture. Maybe he's sleeping and he needs to be woken up. Y'all need to be louder. This goes on into the evening and they're all exhausted. Probably they've all bled out from cutting themselves all day. Baal hasn't done anything. And then Elijah tells them that before his God lights up the altar, he wants them to douse his altar with water. Now remember, they're in the middle of a drought. It hadn't rained for three years. Water is like gold. And he tells them, look, you douse that thing with water. They take what water they have, they pour it out, they drench the altar. Then Elijah prayed and God lit up the altar. People were saying, thinking Yahweh is the real God. He turns on the prophets of Baal and they kill all of them for misleading the people. Then Elijah tells Ahab to run as fast as he can back to the city because it's getting ready to rain. Ahab believes him and he runs to the city and Elijah races with him and gets back to town. He actually beats him back. And then it starts to rain and it rains in biblical proportions. 450 prophets of Baal lay dead on top of Mount Carmel in the rain. And Jezebel, when she hears about it, is absolutely furious. 1 Kings 9, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow. In other words, Jezebel tells him, Elijah, by tomorrow you're going to be as dead as my prophets are. Your life's over. Now you would think that Elijah would laugh at that. What a spineless threat. I just won prophet smackdown. Did you not see that? My God is the God of all gods. I mean, he's in charge of everything. He controlled the rain. You want to come after anybody, you got to get through God to get to me. Bring it on. I don't have anything to be worried about. She's a powerful woman. Perhaps the most powerful person in the kingdom. She has lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. She has troops and soldiers. But, but God's done this amazing thing to reveal himself to Elijah and everybody else. So from our perspective, we're reading this story going, what in the world does Elijah have to be worried about? God just like pumped him up. He's riding high. He's on a wave of momentum that God created through Elijah. Elijah has to be feeling like Superman. I'm bulletproof. Nothing can touch me. Bring it on, Jezebel. Look at what Elijah does. This is so incredible and so revealing of his faith. God's got his back. He knows his future's in God's hands, right? Well, incredibly not. He was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Elijah bolted. What? He ran from Jezebel. Elijah, you don't remember what just happened? God just had your back. God just had everything in control. And Elijah's as he's running, looking over his shoulder going, yeah, but what has he done for me lately? Elijah's okay in the moment, but he's not focused on the moment anymore. He's focused and shifted his focus from God in this incredible moment to his fear of victory in the future, which is uncertain. 
And since he's now focused on himself instead of God, he bolted and he ran like Forrest. He didn't stop running for a very long time. Now we read this and we think, Elijah, what in the world did you have to be worried about? Yet anyone could look over our lives, see how God's been faithful to us in the past, and ask us, why are you worried about your future? Have you not looked over your past? Have you not seen what God's been doing in your life? Have you not noticed that he's always had your tomorrow under his control, that all the things you worried about never really happened? Or if they did happen, he provided you with resources and you wouldn't want to go back and undo them because those are the most incredible spiritual moments of your life. Do you not remember two days ago, last week, four years ago, what God did in your life, in my life? And we all go, yeah, but tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Elijah and so many of us are focused on the threats of the future that we forget God's faithfulness in our past. Elijah has a devotion problem. He's forgetting who God is. He ran all the way from Mount Carmel back to Judah. That's another country. It's about 70 miles. It'd be like if we started running right now to Naples. We didn't stop till we got to Naples. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Verse four, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah's had enough. He's tired of running. He's been running during the drought for three years, and now he's running from Jezebel. He's exhausted, and he sits down in the rest of this tree. He says he wants to die. That he's no better than his ancestors who are already dead. Look at what fear does to him. Jezebel threatens him and he literally bolts in fear. He's so afraid of dying that he wants to die. He's so afraid of dying that he'd rather die. God, let me die so I don't have to worry about dying in the future. I just want to get it over with. God was with Elijah and he's with him again. No matter how far Elijah ran, God was still with him. No matter how far your fears have taken you away from where you need to be with God, God is still in the midst of those fears with you. And he lay down and he slept under the broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. In other words, Elijah, you're killing yourself with worry. You're killing yourself with anxiety. You're so stressed out, you're not even eating. You're exhausted from a journey that wasn't even yours to take. Even though you're scared, lacking faith, and running from your fear of tomorrow, God has still sent me to take care of you. I haven't forgotten where you are. Your heavenly father knows what you need and right now you need nourishment. God ministered to his physical needs because without those needs met, without the rest and food, Elijah is not teachable. Your heavenly father knows what you need. 
And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He kept running from Jezebel. The food just gave him power to keep fleeing, keep running. He reached the mountain of God, Mount Oreb. We call it Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain. The total distance from Mount Carmel to Mount Sinai is 280 miles. He has essentially run from Sarasota past Naples through Key West all the way to Cuba. That's how fearful he is. He keeps running. This mountain is where Moses saw a burning bush and God spoke to him from that bush. It's the same mountain where Moses went up to meet God and came back with the Ten Commandments. It's a place in the minds of the Jewish people where God hung out. If you can't be around the Ark of the Covenant, run to the mountain of God to be in his presence. So Elijah spends over a month traveling to this deserted, lonely, uninhabited place to die, but to be as close to God as he could in the process. He did all of this because none of what was happening today made sense, and tomorrow seemed so fearful and so uncertain. He was so afraid of the future that he'd rather die. Here on this mountain, God asked him one of the most incredible questions in Scripture. Simple but profound. On the surface, superficial, but as you think about it, it's incredibly deep. Then he came to the cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Look at that question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing, Elijah? What are you doing here? You were miles and miles and miles away from where I had you. Suddenly tomorrow seemed threatening and you ran away. What, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? I love this question because I have the feeling that so many of us are stressed out with the uncertainty of tomorrow. We've been doing some running ourselves, haven't we? Some of us have run mentally. Some of us are detached from our family because we're so freaked out about the future. We can't focus on anybody today. We can't maintain our relationships because we're so fearful of what could happen tomorrow. Some of us have actually physically run from God. You've run away from your family. You've run away from a marriage. You've run away from your hometown or your old church family or your parents. Some of us have run to escape alcohol or drugs or relationships. Most of us in some part of our lives are running from God. We're in that place we've never been emotionally. We're in a place where we've never been relationally. We're in a place we've never been physically, and it's all because of stress. Something happened and freaked us out about the future, and now it's destroying our present. We're in a place where we have no place to be, the place God doesn't want us to be. And what if God showed up in that place in your life and said to you, wait a minute, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why did you run? Why have you allowed the uncertainty of tomorrow, by the way, tomorrow is always uncertain. 
Why have you allowed the threat of tomorrow? By the way, tomorrow is always threatening. Why have you allowed a future you can't control? By the way, you've never been able to control your future. Why have you allowed your fear of the future to drive you to a place you have no place being? What are you doing here? This doesn't make sense even to us, so you know it makes no sense to God. But Elijah does what we would do. We start to explain ourselves to God because somehow he missed how important this is. We ran and it's important. Somehow God doesn't know that. We got to teach God something. So he says, God, can I just tell you my story? You see, God, because if I tell you my story, you'll see how miserable it is, how uncertain my future is, and then you'll understand why I ran. God, here's why I'm here. And Elijah begins to explain. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I am left and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah says, God, what do you mean what am I doing here? Did you forget Jezebel kills prophets? And she's hunting for me. I'm the last prophet left, God. Have you been paying attention? Do you expect me to stay back in the vicinity of Ahab? They want to kill me. You want me to stay in the northern kingdom? I can't go there. You expect me to stay there under the threat of death? Did you forget what's going on there, God? Elijah is now hiding in a cave. 280 miles from where God told him to be. So what do you think God's going to tell him to do? He says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. We don't know what Elijah thought, but it might have gone something like this. What kind of answer is that? How's that going to help me? God, you're missing the point. Nobody believes that you exist except me. Nobody's paying attention to you except me. God, you've not done anything. Things are bad. My life is threatened. Jezebel's looking for me. Everyone's looking for me. It's over for me. I'm better off dead. And you want me to go stand in front of some cave. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. God's just showing off. Elijah, I'm going to remind you of who I am. Watch the earth shake. Watch the wind. But God still hasn't passed by yet. He wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, guess what? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now notice something here that's very important. Elijah's not at the mouth of the cave where God told him to be. Remember, God said, go out and stand on the mountain and stand before me. Elijah didn't go. He stayed in the cave. He let the wind go by. He let the earthquake go by. He let the fire go by. And only when God begins to make this low rumble whisper thing, we learn that it says, 
He wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now he's where God told him to be. And now, because he's obedient to where God told him to be, he's going to actually hear from God. And then God asks him the question, what are you doing here? Elijah? God, God, Elijah, if, if I didn't exist, then I, I understand why you're here. You see, you're acting like an atheist. You're doing what somebody who doesn't believe in me, doesn't know me does. But I'm here. And I was here before you ran. I was on Mount Carmel. I'm here with you now. Did you like the mountain show that I gave you? That earthquake that I just did, the fire on the altar. You see, Elijah, you forgot to add me to your future. When you replayed your future over and over in your head, in your mind, you left me behind. You're acting like you've written me out of all the future chapters of your life. I am the definition of your hope for and in the future. Why don't you include me in your thoughts about your future? What in the world are you doing here in this place, Elijah? And as if God didn't hear him the first time, Elijah begins to repeat his sorry story again. Well, I've been jealous for the Lord, God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they only seek my life to take it away. That's what we do. When we run from God, we rationalize and we come up with a reason why we are where we are, and then we keep playing that back whenever we're challenged. It's like a loop. The problem is, as we keep playing it back, eventually we realize how silly it sounds. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Elijah's worldview is collapsing, a sure sign of stress. He can't see past himself. He's got this stress-induced narcissism that we all get. When we're under stress and we turn away from God, everything becomes about us. Doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. Doesn't matter what happens in the future to anybody else. You have a problem. It needs to be solved. The world can't be right until you're okay. The only thing that matters is me. Elijah starts to give the same speech, but I think he began to understand that it's really a lame excuse. He starts thinking perhaps about the fireworks show and the earthquake and the provisions and all the angels that showed up. All the stuff God has done to be faithful to him and provide for him even while he's running from where God told him to be. And perhaps he's beginning to realize that his story and his future does include God. You see, apart from God, I should be in this cave hiding. But what I've just experienced, in, in light of God's faithfulness, what am I doing here? It's true, the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, they've torn down altars, they've killed every prophet, and now they're trying to kill me too. But I guess that's really not a good excuse for being in this place because God, you're apparently still here. And the Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. In other words, go back to where you came from. Go back to where you started running. Go back and go to the place I told you to be. 
Back to the point where you started running from me in fear. You see, you aren't finished yet. You and I have a future to finish. And when you arrive, you will anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Wait a minute. Syria. Those are the Assyrians? They're bordering the northern kingdom. They're ruthless enemies. They kill everybody. They destroy everybody. They're poised on the border of northern Israel right now, and they've threatened to take us over. And you want me to just go up there and anoint Hazael as king? You know they already have a king, right, God? You're doing something new, aren't you? Yeah, we're going to do something new. And then he says, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Okay, Israel also has a king, God. His name is Ahab. His wife's name is Jezebel. You may have forgot. They want to kill me. God's like, yeah, I know. I got that covered. I had it covered all along. That fear you're running from, I've already taken care of. We're going to replace the king. And then it gets even more odd. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, or sorry, Shaphat of Abel-Manola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Okay, wait. God, you already have a prophet. It's me. He says, I know, we're getting a new one. Okay, so God, you've like thought this thing through, haven't you? You kind of had this planned all along, didn't you? When I was running in fear, you were already replacing Jezebel and Ahab. When I was running in fear, you were replacing the king of Syria and you were taking away Ahab's power and you were making it to where I'm not the only prophet. You, you had this, right? It begins to dawn on Elijah that while he's running, God is working out his future. So all I've been telling you about the bad things you, you knew, like you already had it solved. It's all part of your plan, and it's the plan for my future that you knew all along. That's why you're asking me, what am I doing here? You're up to something, God. I didn't know that. I forgot. God says, that's why I'm asking. I haven't changed. I haven't abandoned you. I'm not giving up on you. You've run almost 300 miles over months, but I'm still God. I still have your future. So, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then he says, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, all those people that worship Baal are gonna be destroyed. Including Ahab and Jezebel, they're no threat to you. I had them taken care long before you were afraid of them. In other words, Elijah, you think you're the last man standing, but you're not. You think you know all there is to know, so you ran, but you don't know all there is to know because you're not the God of your future. I'm cleaning house. I'm bringing justice to those who worship Baal, just like I promised throughout all of Scripture. While you've been running and looking at yourself, you miss 7,000 other faithful people in Israel that I've kept who have not worshiped Baal. While you were running, you see, Elijah, I was working. 
Right now, many of us are running from something. Worry has triggered our flight or fright response and we decided to fly. We're scared of our future and because of that, we're totally missing the present. Our fear has impacted us, those closest to us, may have caused us to do some things that made absolutely no sense. Decisions made in fear that didn't honor God. And I think God wants to step into your present right now and ask you the question, what are you doing here? Are you an atheist? Why are you acting like one? Why do you not remember that I've already got your future in my hands? God wants to remind us we have a history with him. He's been faithful in our lives too. He's been faithful in our past. In fact, if you went back and looked at your past, you'd be able to point moment to moment where you had a concern and God took care of it. You could look back at it later and see that God had it all along. You can testify to how great God was and had you not gone through that, you wouldn't be the person you are now. And that you had to go through that to be able to understand what you're doing and who God really is. And while those were terrible, frightening, fearful moments, they were the closest you've ever felt to God. And they totally transformed your life. See, if we stop and pray in the midst of our worry, if we stop focusing on ourselves and shift our devotion, we're reminded of God's faithfulness in our past. Most of us have enough history with God that there's enough truth that there's no excuse for us to be where we've allowed worry to take us. God's still in control. He still has a plan and purpose for your life. In fact, the thing you're running from was the plan and purpose for your life because it's necessary to take you where he wants you to go. You see, everything that's ever happened in your life, God has allowed. Everything. He's allowed it. He's omnipotent. He could stop it. He didn't. He allowed it into your life. Why? Because he loves you. And he knows there are certain circumstances in your human life that build you spiritually for what's to come in the future. We're in a laboratory of life. We come here, we learn scripture, but God takes us out into the world. He says, okay, let's test that faith you've been talking about. Let's see if you can include me in your future because right now you're just looking at you. You totally forgot that I've got your future too. And so God's advice to Elijah, you gotta go back to where you were when you started running. And then you gotta have confidence that God has your future under control. Some of you through your worry have made things worse than they would have been. Jesus said, your worry hasn't added a moment to your life, but it sure has removed some good things from your life. You and I have missed out so much of our lives in the moment because we're so fearful of the future. It's almost like we've erased God's past faithfulness in our life. But in our moments of worry, we forget God's faithfulness and we go places we have no business going. It's amazing how today's worries not only freak us out about tomorrow, but they erase our memory of what God's done in our past. The worries of today make us doubt whether God will be there in the future. The point of the whole series is one Elijah learned the hard way. Here's the point. God didn't tell us to be careless, irresponsible, or passive. He tells us to do everything that we're responsible to do in the moment. 
And when those whispering voices come and your mind begins to go down the trail of worry and you begin to make decisions that's gonna take you off center, in that moment of flight or fight, you have to shift your devotion. You must seek first the kingdom of God. You pray and God reminds you of who he is, how faithful he's been and how he's already worked out your future. Just like Jesus in the garden, you pray and you pray and you pray until in the core of your spirit, you know that you want thy will to be done, not yours. God, I've done all I can do today. I'll see you in my tomorrow. Tomorrow's uncertain. Tomorrow has been and will always be uncertain. I'm not gonna allow my stress, my anxiety, and my worry to drive me to places I have no business being. I'm gonna walk into tomorrow confident that my God is walking with me and he is Emmanuel. Scriptures tell us in Philippians, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, with prayer, thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And here's the promise. The peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. He doesn't always change your circumstances, but he sure changes the way you act in your circumstances. And even in the midst of your circumstances, you can be anxious about nothing because your prayer has returned to you a supernatural peace that only comes from the throne of God. Your other option, of course, is to go ahead and live like an atheist. Spend a lot of time and energy focused on things you can't do anything about that will probably never, ever happen. People who worry to me are like those who danced and paced the floor and did whatever they could have on top of Mount Carmel to try to get the attention of some God that they're worshiping to. Have you allowed your fear of tomorrow to shape you into someone you didn't want to be? I know people that are so fearful of tomorrow, they've ruined almost every relationship they have today. Some of us need to go back and contact some people and ask for forgiveness. Couldn't be there in the moment because I was so fearful of my future. Others have turned to alcohol or drugs or gambling or materialism or shady financial deals or stealing to try to escape your fear of the future. You gotta go back. God's invitation to you today, God's invitation to us every day, I want you to go back because you have no business being here. Because I'm the God that's called you to call me Father. You do what you can do today and you trust me with your tomorrow. My prayer is that the light of remnant will shine brightly to those in the darkness who are living in fear and anxiety and worry because we haven't allowed our circumstances to force us to run from God. They see that we're clearly different than the atheists around us who are panicked. Do all that you can do and then call it a day. And at the end of that day, pray. The hands that once shaped mountains created the universe and knit you together in the womb hold your future. Once that truth becomes your reality, you can be anxious about nothing Get your life back and live in the moment present with Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that 
Even when we run in fear, you don't give up on us. You chase us just like you chased Elijah. You move us to the place you want us to be. God, there's so much to learn. And life is so much easier if we do it your way. So I pray, God, for all of us. I, th I think all of us in some area of our life, we're running. We may have rationalized it. We may have our story of why we're there. But the truth is, we're running. We've forgotten your faithfulness. We've erased your faithfulness. And we've forgotten that you've already worked out our future. So God, as we sing this next song together, could we make it a proclamation? Proclamation to be different. To remember who you are and whose we are. And to walk into our future without any fear or anxiety or worry. And we ask it in Jesus' name.
God, you've been faithful in our past. You're faithful in our present. And we know you'll be faithful in our future. And because of that very solid foundational truth, we can be anxious about nothing. Help us, God, to shift our devotion. Focus on your kingdom, what you're doing. And help us, God, to face our future with calm, confidence, assurance. And help us, God, to be that light in the darkness to others who are running because they have no God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.